The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Please turn in your Bibles to the Word of God in John chapter 5, if you're not already there. John chapter 5, we've been studying in that chapter how Jesus is moving events, is in complete control of a scenario where he is displaying and explaining his deity. The events began with Jesus doing a miracle, healing the paralytic, a man who had been paralyzed for almost 40 years. And Jesus has the audacity to heal the man on the Sabbath. The religious leaders are offended by that. They're offended because they reinterpreted the Sabbath in their self-righteousness. They interpreted the Sabbath to to prohibit even the healing of a man. And so they accuse Jesus of Sabbath violation, which is a capital offense under the Mosaic Law. Jesus responds, and Jesus defends himself with his words. But he doesn't give the expected defense, which is that you've reinterpreted the Sabbath requirements in the law. He doesn't say that. He defends himself by saying, the reason I did a miracle on the Sabbath and the reason that's okay is because I'm God. That's the defense that he gives that we've seen so far in John chapter 5. And so now there is a double offense that the religious leaders take. It's not, they're not just offended that he violates the Sabbath or at least their tradition the reinterpretation of the Sabbath. They're also offended that he makes himself equal with God, which is to say, the second capital offense, blasphemy. The reason they view it as blasphemy is because they don't believe that he is God in the flesh. If they had believed it, then they would have fallen on their faces and groveled before him. But they don't believe it, and so they now cry out blasphemy. And we saw that they sought to kill him for both of these things that he did, healing on the Sabbath and making himself equal with God. And so today we break into the middle of Jesus's discourse, into the middle of Jesus's words, Jesus's defense as to why he heals on the Sabbath. Remember last time we saw that his defense was, I'm equal with God. If it's okay for God to heal on the Sabbath, then that makes it okay for me to heal on the Sabbath. The reason my action on the Sabbath is not a violation is because God works on the Sabbath. And so I can work on the Sabbath. In this case, he was healing. Jesus didn't violate the Sabbath. He violated their traditions. And so what he does is he explains his equality with God. He does it repeatedly and he does it unapologetically. He does it over and over and over in this conversation that he is having with the hypocrites, with the religious leaders. He does it before a murderous crowd that hungers for his death. You see, this is the core of Christianity. The core of the Christian message is that God became a man to bear the penalty that was due us, to pay for the sins that was due us so that we might not go in judgment, so that we might not be under judgment. That's the core of the Christian message. And Jesus 
as a man of absolute courage, repeats it over and over unapologetically. It's a lesson for us. Right? When you give someone the gospel, and I pray that you do because God tells you to, don't get timid when you get to the part of the gospel that describes Jesus as being God in the flesh. That's the key. Don't be timid. Right? This is why the world perceives the Christian as pusillanimous and weak. Because they perceive us as cowards when we get to the core of the Christian message. Because we think, oh, they're going to think I'm weird. They're going to think I'm this. Maybe I should somehow qualify it. And so, sadly, the gospel message of so many believers dies a death of a thousand qualifiers. Weak. Just say it. Speak the truth in love. This is what Jesus does. Jesus is our example. And he gives the core of the Christian message, which is that God loves us and became a man to pay the penalty that was due us so that we might not suffer eternal damnation. And God in the flesh does it unapologetically. This is what we will see over and over and over and over and over and over again in John chapter 5 is Jesus explaining how He is equal with the Father, how He is God. Last time we finished with verse 24 of chapter 5. Let me spend some more time on that verse today. Verse 24 reads like this. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking to the hypocrites, to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. He begins it with the solemn declaration, with the solemn formula, Amen, Amen, translated in the old King James, Verily, verily. Truly, truly, I am about to tell you something that is of eternal significance. Listen up. That's what truly, truly means. At the end of verse 21, Jesus said, I give eternal life to whomever I wish. Look at that in verse 21. You see that at the end of verse 21? I give eternal life to whom I wish, is what verse 21 says. So then when we get to verse 24, we see the ones to whom he wishes to give eternal life. It's those who hear my word, which is to say those who accept it. It's not just, oh, I heard it. I heard the word, and then I just kind of... No, it's hearing it and acting on it, which is to say believing it, accepting it. Those are the ones that he gives eternal life to. This is the seventh claim so far in John chapter 5 that Jesus is God. He is equating himself with the Father by equating belief in his word with belief, to use his language here, in the one who sent him, him who sent me. Jesus is equating belief in his word with belief in the word of the Father. Do you remember what John said about Jesus at the end of the prologue? of the Gospel of John in John chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus said to, in this description of, excuse me, John said about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 18. He said this, 
No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, the Lagos, who is in the bosom, bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Only begotten God, the monogenes theos, monogenes, absolutely unique one. The unique God. The Lagos is unique among the Godhead because the Lagos, Jesus, is not just God, he is man. Fully God, fully man. But what, what I really want to drill down to here is what John is saying in verse 18, the very end of the prologue, is the last part. It says... He has explained him. Who's the he? Who's the him? The he is Jesus. The him is the Father. Explained is the Greek word exegeomai. Exegeomai is translated in the English. It's where we get our English word exegete. Jesus exegetes the Father. He explains the Father. Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father, the perfect explanation of the Father, so that when you believe in Jesus' words, it's the same as believing in the Father's words. In verse 24 of John chapter 5, Jesus declares that His word does three divine acts. Three divine actions. Number one, it gives eternal life. Number two, it removes judgment. And number three, it relocates the one who believes in his word, it relocates him from, from one realm to a different realm, from the realm of death to the realm of life. These actions are all the exclusive province of God. You see, this is the eighth claim that Jesus is making unapologetically to deity. In addition to my word being the same as the Father's, that's a claim to deity, Jesus is saying, my word does the things that only the word of God can do. These three actions. Let me talk about each one of them. Jesus says that his word produces eternal life for those who believe in it. As we've seen before, the phrase eternal life is not about quantity of life. Everybody's going to live forever. Everybody's going to live forever. The believers, the unbelievers, those who hate Jesus, those who love Jesus, those who have trusted in his word, those who, is, who hate his word. Everybody's going to live forever. Eternal life is not about living forever. It's not about quantity of life. It is about quality of life. It's about where are you going to live forever? And maybe better said, with whom are you going to live forever? Are you going to live with the author of life forever? Or are you going to live with the destroyer of life forever? That's what Jesus says. He says, my word produces eternal life for those who believe in it. You see, the believer has eternal life. Jesus says it in the present tense, in verse 24. In the present tense, right? He says, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not will have, not might have, not will in the future in some condition when this condition is fulfilled and this condition, he says, he has it, present tense, has eternal life. Do you understand the significance of this? I don't think you do. Do you understand that you possess something from a different dimension? You possess something from a dimension 
that is beyond and independent of time and space, beyond the universe. You possess something from a dimension that is outside of the laws of physics of our universe. You possess something from a dimension that is from everlasting to everlasting. You possess something from a dimension that is the everlasting kingdom of God. And you possess it now, in time and space. On this planet, in a body that is dying, you possess this thing from an alternate dimension, from a dimension that is a forever dimension. You possess it now. That thing that you possess currently is eternal life if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. And what it does, what this thing that you possess from the other dimension that is independent of us, independent of time and space in this universe, what it gives you is your destiny. Because you, f- you possess eternal life now, today, it ensures your destiny in that which is forever. It ensures and guarantees your destiny in the eternal kingdom of God that is to come. And so this should give you assurance of the security of your eternality in the eternal kingdom of God. The fact that you have eternal life today should give you assurance of the security, your eternal security in the eternal kingdom of God. If you could lose eternal life, we're calling it the wrong thing. Stop calling it eternal life. Jesus made a boo-boo. The apostles made a boo-boo. And they must have done it over and over and over again because they call it eternal life. I wish they wouldn't make that mistake. We're calling it the wrong thing if we can lose it. We should start calling it five-year life or 50-year life or 75-year life or conditional life. Something other than eternal life. Because eternal life, by definition, means that is... Somebody help me. Eternal. Forever. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not encouraging you to sin. Right? Some people come along and say, look, we can't tell people that they can't lose their salvation because then they're going to feel that they can do this sin and this sin and this sin. I don't subscribe to that view at all because I think it's inconsistent with the Scriptures. Your eternal life is not dependent on you. Praise God for that. It's not dependent on me. So you can't lose it. It's dependent on the one who gave it to you who cannot lie. Eternal life is forever. I'm not encouraging you to sin. I'm encouraging you to love your God who loves you enough to come as a man to die for your sins so that he may give you eternal life, grant you as a free gift of grace, eternal life that you would never lose. That's not a license to sin. That's a license to love him. Now, is he going to take the belt out and whip you if you engage in sin? Absolutely. Is it going to hurt? No question. So don't do it. But the reason we encourage people not to sin is because it's an offense to God. It's because God will discipline them. But it's not because they will lose their salvation because that is inconsistent with the Scripture. 
that's inconsistent with the very phrase that Jesus uses. Eternal life. Forever life. The second act that is a divine act that is produced by Jesus' word that we see here in verse 24 is that Jesus' word accomplishes that which removes judgment for those who believe in his word. Jesus said this earlier to Nicodemus in John 3.18. Jesus said, He who believes in him, he's speaking about himself, in the third person, he who believes in the Son, in Jesus, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, the monogenes huias thas. The only begotten, the absolutely unique, unique among human beings because he is not just human, he is God. Unique among the Godhead because he is not just God, he is human. The one who believes in the monogenes, the absolutely unique, only begotten Son of God, doesn't come into judgment. Please don't misunderstand this. This is not the jury coming back and saying, you're acquitted. This is not the jury coming back and saying, you're not guilty. Right? There, there, there are two verdicts from the jury. It's either guilty or not guilty. The verdict from the jury doesn't come back and give you a not guilty verdict. The jury doesn't do that. The high court of heaven doesn't issue a not guilty verdict to you. You, make no mistake, are guilty, as am I. We deserve judgment. You do, I do. For our sin before a holy, righteous God. We are guilty, convicted, but we're pardoned. That's the difference. The court said, the high court of heaven says, guilty as charged, treasonous, having betrayed the king. Sinners by nature, all of us. But then the father says, you're one of his. Pardoned. Guilty, yet pardoned. So you don't come into judgment because you're with him. You're with the only begotten son, my son. That's, what's hap- that's what it means to not come into judgment. Guilty, but pardoned. It's important to remember the guilt. Now, we don't go wallowing and say, I'm guilty, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea, you know, the old Latin phrase, right? I'm so guilty. No, 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 no. The reason I emphasize the guilt but pardon is because I want you to understand how bad off we were. It's like the old saying, the old pastor says. Cheer up. You're much worse off than you thought you were. But in Him, you're more loved than you can ever imagine. I want you to approach your salvation in wonder and awe and gratitude. Because we were under judgment, but by the matchless, boundless grace of God. He's passed us out of being in judgment into life, which is the third divine act that Jesus' word accomplishes in verse 24. It's a relocation act. It's a change of position, relocating us from the realm of death to the realm of life. Verse 24 says that the one who believes in Jesus' word has passed out of death into life. That's the phrase. Passed out of death into life. It's the Greek word metabaino. 
this passing out. Metabaino means moving from one condition, from one status, from one state to another. And it's in the perfect tense. This is sweet. You ready for this? This is sweet. It's in the perfect tense. This is where the Greek is very, very important. Not every time is the Greek important. I don't take you to the Greek every word here. The the, sometimes, most of the times, the, you don't need to know that the the is the the in the Greek. The ha in the Greek. And you don't always need to know that it's the chi. Sometimes the Greek, because what happens is our translators, they are Greek and Hebrew brainiacs. I mean, super, super extra experts. So 95%, 98%, 97%, the English is a beautiful, perfect translation or adequate translation of the Hebrew of the Greek. But sometimes you need to drill down and see the original language because you miss some of the flavor. This is one of those times. This is one of those times. Metabaino, having been having been moved to locations is in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is a tense in the Greek where the action's completed in the past, but it's an ongoing act. The results of it are ongoing. They continue. John will use another perfect tense at the very end of the book, near the very end of the book, when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he will use the perfect tense of the Greek word teleo, to telestai. Actually, the accent's on the second epsilon. To to telestai, I guess I said it right. Finished. Right? When he's on the cross, his work is finished. Finished. In the past, with the results, forever. That's what John is recording of Jesus' words, that we have passed out of the realm of death into the realm of life, and that passing has happened already. Now, you're already out of the realm of death with the results of it going on forever and ever and ever. Based on the Son's work, the Father has eternally moved us, relocated us, from the realm of death and darkness to the realm of light and life. Life. Look how Paul said it in Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Then we get to verse 25 of John 5. And in verse 25, Jesus talks about resurrections plural. He talks about resurrections to evidence the power of His divine Word. He's going to show us three resurrections. One spiritual, two physical. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Again, He gives the solemn formula, the solemn declaration Amen, amen, verily, verily. What I'm about to tell you is of eternal significance. So listen, Jesus is saying to a murderous crowd who craves to kill him. Having already determined 
that he is guilty of two capital offenses, which is a product of their unbelief. He says here in verse 25, the hour is at hand now for the dead to come to life. The dead are coming to life right now, Jesus says. What is he talking about? Because there are no dead people coming out of the tombs. There are no bodies rising out of the graves. What's he talking about when he says the time is now when the dead are coming to life? He's talking about something that the Apostle Paul will expand upon later. He's talking about this. The world is made up of dead men walking and dead women walking. The world is made up of those who are physically alive but spiritually dead. Death means separation. Physical death is separation of the body from the soul. Spiritual death is separation from God. Paul explains that before we came to Christ, we were dead. He says it to people who are alive in Ephesians 2. Right? He's not talking to a bunch of corpses that are lying on the ground. He's talking to Ephesians, to people, to humans who are breathing, who are alive, physically alive. He says in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, we were born sinners, separated from God. We're actually conceived that way. Right? David says, in sin I was conceived in my mother's womb. My mother conceived me. He's not saying that his mother engaged in some sort of sexual sin. He's saying that he was a sinner even from conception. One of the strongest verses in the Bible that supports life in the womb. We were born, even conceived, as sinners separated from God with a great gulf separating us, a barrier that separated us from God before we came to Christ. Before we trust in Christ, we are thrice damned, thrice condemned. First, because Adam's original sin is imputed to us. Second, because we have a sin nature. And third, because we commit our own personal sins. Now, some people say, well, hey, that's not fair. That's not fair that Adam's sin was imputed to us. You want to talk about fairness? You want to talk about fairness? You confirm the validity and the fairness of God imputing Adam's original sin to you by you committing your own personal sins every day. We are thrice condemned before we come to Christ because before we are born, Adam's original, God imputes Adam's original sin to us. When he sinned, we sinned. We're born with a sin nature and we commit our own personal sins. And it is only through the power of the word of God that the dead come to live. Again, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive, living, and powerful. It is living. Jesus is saying, my word is so active and powerful and living that I take the one who is dead spiritually dead. He's talking about a spiritual resurrection. He's talking about the doctrine of regeneration, where the one who is spiritually dead, which is all of us before we come to Christ, is made spiritually alive. This is the ninth time 
that Jesus is claiming deity for himself. Here in verse 25, he's saying, my word, which is the voice of the Son of God, that's the phrase here, is so powerful that it makes the spiritually dead become spiritually alive. Look how Paul said it in Romans Romans 16, 13, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. He's not talking about people who have been raised from the dead out of their graves. He's talking to these Roman believers who used to be spiritually dead and now they're spiritually alive. Or Paul says in Colossians 2, 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he... That he there is God, made you alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven all our transgressions. So what Jesus is talking about in verse 25 is a spiritual resurrection. It is regeneration. After believing in Jesus' word, the believer becomes not just physically alive, but spiritually alive. Sadly, most Christians find this colossally boring. Boring. You know, what's so much more interesting is, is, is not, the, not the spiritual resurrection. I want to talk about the physical resurrection. I want to talk about how I'm going to be able to fly through space. That's what Jesus did, right? In Acts 1, he ascends. He doesn't have a space helmet on. He ascends to the third heaven. I want to talk about, I, I, I'm, I'm much more interested in the physical resurrection, where I can travel through doors, where I get a new body, I can travel through space. Most Christians are much more interested in that resurrection. And to be sure, that will be amazing, the physical resurrection. But most people are are more interested in the physical resurrection than they are, most Christians, I mean, than the spiritual resurrection. Well, guess what? No spiritual resurrection, no physical resurrection. The spiritual resurrection happens first, God quickens your spirit, to use the old English word. Makes it, that which is dead, because we're spiritually dead, He makes it alive. And only after having received eternal life, a spiritual resurrection, spiritual life, only after that are we then guaranteed what will happen in the future, which is a spectacular physical resurrection. But the reason why we're so enamored, more enamored with the physical resurrection than our current spiritual resurrection is because, sadly, we've been taught by the spirit of the age. We've been conditioned, we've been trained by the, by the culture to be so enamored with what we can see and touch and feel. That's why we we're interested in a body that we'll be able to see and touch and feel. It's going to be remade, it's going to be reconstituted, but we're more interested in that than we are in the spiritual rebirth, the spiritual quickening that we receive in the instant of faith by believing in Christ's Word. Spiritual resurrection is more important than physical resurrection. Although physical resurrection is important, spiritual resurrection is more important even than that. What we're seeing here again is eternal security, just like in verse 24. You you find eternal security in verse 25 as well, because our spiritual resurrection is our eternal life. It's life that we possess now in a body that is wasting away, in a body that is dying slowly but surely. You can never spiritually die. You can never be spiritually dead again. Once you have trusted in Christ, you are spiritually resurrected. Never 
to spiritually die again. Now, you can wander off like the pig wanders off to the mud, right? When I wander off into sin, I, I'm, I'm like the, the pig that wanders off to the mud. You can, you can go back to the place that you're no longer identified with, to be sure, and return to sin, but that's not your identity. There, you're acting like you're dead, but you're not because you have been spiritually resurrected, regenerated spiritual life, eternal life. Your spiritual life is everlasting because it's given to you by the one who is everlasting. One day your body will be everlasting as well. But we'll get to that in a few moments. Look at verse 26. It reads like this, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Here Jesus explains how it is that he's able to give spiritual resurrection, to give spiritual life to the dead who believe in his word. The reason Jesus is able to make you spiritually alive, to spiritually resurrect you, is because the Father, Jesus says here in these two verses, has given Jesus authority over life and judgment. What's curious to me is that Jesus speaks of life and judgment in the same breath. He says, I have authority. Authority has been given to me over life and judgment. In the same sentence, what is he doing? He's speaking about the entire realm of existence. He's speaking about existence on the earth and existence in the eschaton. The eschaton is the word that theologians use. It's from the, from the Greek word es- eschaton, eschatos, last things. Jesus is speaking when he says, I, all, authority has been given to me over life and judgment. He's speaking about the entire realm of existence. He has authority over the entire realm of his existence. This is another claim to deity. This is the 10th claim to deity. He is speaking about authority over the earth and authority over the end times, authority uh, over what is coming. He's saying, I have authority over everything, over all things that have existed, that exist now, and that will ever exist. And my authority extends not just to how things come into existence. Right? Jesus is the member of the Trinity who is the agent of creation. You know that from the beginning of Hebrews 1. All three members of the Trinity were involved in creation, but Jesus is the agent. The Son is the agent of creation. Jesus is saying here, I have authority over everything, not just bringing it into existence, but my authority extends to its state of existence, its condition of existence, either life or judgment. What's included in judgment? Death. Jesus is claiming that which is the exclusive province of God to have authority over life and death, the ultimate authority over life and death. The two realms that exist are life and judgment, and death is included in judgment. When Jesus says, which is what in effect he's saying, I have authority over life and death, he is claiming deity. Moses recorded the exclusive jurisdiction of of the ultimate power over life and death in God. He recorded it back in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. 
This is Yahweh speaking. See now that I, Yahweh, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. This is what Jesus is claiming. Don't miss it. Jesus is claiming no one escapes from me. No one escapes from my power, from my authority, because the Father has given me all authority over life and judgment, which includes death. Hannah, in her beautiful prayer in 1 Samuel 2, uses the same title, 1 Samuel 2, 6. There Hannah says, Yahweh kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. It is God who has the ultimate authority to give life and to take life. And then John, our John, the Apostle John, records in Revelation when he saw the resurrected Christ, who, of course, the grave cannot hold because Christ has life. When he saw the resurrected Christ, this is what he records in Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades, Hades being the realm of death now, not at the end, not in the eschaton. At the end of time, the dead who are in Hades will be taken from Hades and will be cast into the lake of fire. We'll see that in a few moments before the morning is over. The point is that Jesus is claiming deity because he is claiming to do that which only God does. He's claiming the authority that only God has, the authority over life and death. In verse 27, when Jesus says that he has authority over judgment, he doesn't just mean death, he includes death, but he also means authority to recompense. He will recompense believers at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3. You can't lose your salvation because you have life that is eternal, everlasting, but you can fritter away your eternal rewards, squander them, that God has already created beforehand, Ephesians 2.10. They're already created for you. You can waste your eternal life, your, your, excuse me, your eternal rewards. You can lose them, squander them, by living a life that is away from God. You don't lose your salvation, but you lose your rewards. The point is that included within this umbrella of judgment that God has given to Jesus is not just death, but also recompense. He will recompense believers, either giving us eternal rewards or removing the eternal rewards that we otherwise would have gotten, and he will recompense the dead, those who have not been spiritually resurrected. He will recompense them in hell because in the same way that there are, will be degrees of enjoyment of heaven, of God's eternal kingdom for the believer, there will be degrees of suffering and punishment for unbelievers in the lake of fire. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus is saying that the Father has delegated to me all authority over life and judgment. This applies to Jesus' deity, the delegation applies, the delegation from the Father 
to Jesus applies to Jesus' deity and it applies to his humanity. In his deity, he is co-equal with the Father and co-equal with the Spirit. And so he has always had the authority over life and judgment because he's God, God the Son, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God is triune. So why does Jesus, who is God, say that the Father has given him authority over something that he already had authority over? Life and judgment. Why does Jesus say that, God, that the Father has given him authority over everything? Because remember, as we saw last time, the Son never acts independent of the Father. Although the Son is equal with the Father, he submits to his equal as a wife is called to submit to her equal, to her husband, as we saw last time. The Son co-equal with the Father, submits to the Father and never does anything inconsistent with the will of the Father, always obeys the will of the Father. And so it is in this sense that Jesus can say that the Father has given authority, all authority over life and over judgment to the God the Son because the Son submits to the will of the Father. So in the deity of Christ, the Father delegated all authority over life and over judgment, which includes death, to the Son, to Jesus. But in Jesus' humanity, the Father has also delegated all authority. You see that at the end of the verse, right? At the end of verse 27, look at that. It says, because He is the Son of Man. We've seen this title, Son of Man, before. It is a title, it is Jesus' most, the, the title that Jesus uses the most to describe Himself. It comes from Daniel 7. We've seen Daniel 7 before, but I want to take you to Daniel 7. And this time when we read it, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, what I want you to focus on is the delegation of authority that the Father gives to the Son of Man. Look at Daniel 7, verse 13. It's here on the screen. In Daniel 7, verse 13, you have words that the prophet Daniel records. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. That's where Jesus gets the title. It's a messianic title. With the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Ancient of days is the Father. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed the ancient of days the father gives to the son of man jesus dominion which is authority dominion that is everlasting in a kingdom a kingdom is about authority that is everlasting so that all peoples might serve the Son of Man. Again, authority. What Jesus is saying in these passages in John chapter 5 is I have absolute authority. Absolute, unfettered authority. These are words of delegation of authority from the Father to the Son. What we see in verse 28, at the beginning of verse 28 is marveling. 
marveling. Look at verse 28. Jesus says to the crowd, do not marvel at this. What's the this? What's Jesus telling the crowd not to marvel at? It's what he said so far, that belief in his word produces spiritual resurrection, verse 25. It's that the Father has delegated to Jesus all authority over life and judgment, verses 26 and 27. Some of these religious leaders must have been marveling. And so Jesus says, don't marvel at what I've said. Now, I think the word marvel here is not, wow, what you say is so amazing, Jesus. I submit to that. I, I, I believe that. I don't think that's the marveling that's going on by these religious leaders. It's a puzzlement, a bewilderment kind of marvel. Can we really believe what he's saying? And so here at the beginning of verse 28, Jesus says, don't marvel at my words. They should not be difficult for you to understand. They should not be difficult for you to believe. A day is coming when I will evidence my words with my works. And then my works will display that my words are true. My words will then be undeniable. Keep reading. Look at the rest of verse 28. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Don't miss how Jesus has changed the language. He's altered the language here. You see, in verse 25, he said, an hour is coming, and now is. It's at hand. It's here. It's now. But here in verse 28, he says, an hour is coming. He doesn't use the phrase, and now is, because he's drawing a distinction. Spiritual resurrection. Instantaneous. Now. But physical resurrection is not yet. It will come, but it's not yet it's future and jesus is saying that physical resurrection will be for everybody the believers and the unbelievers because everybody's going to live forever jesus is talking here about universal resurrection the universality of resurrection the prophet daniel spoke about this in daniel 12 2 many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt Jesus is saying in John chapter 5 that the power and authority of his word will cause every person's body to raise from the dead. The bodies that are dust from 2,000 years ago. Daniel's body from 2,500 years ago. It's dust. There's nothing to it anymore. It's going to be raised. The Apostle Paul's body from 2,000 years ago is going to be raised. Our great-grandparents' bodies are going to be raised. Everybody's body is going to be raised because of the power of the Word of Jesus. That's what he is saying here. Let me talk about this distinction that, that Jesus is making here just for a moment about good deeds and evil deeds. You see that language there in verse 28 and 29, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed or did the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. 
The word deeds is not in the original text. It's in italics. should be in italics in your Bibles. And the NASB translators have added that, apparently to smooth out the translation. They felt like it was necessary to smooth out the transa- translation. What they, what they do is when they add something, which sometimes you need to do to make the translation kind of flow when you're translating from Greek or Hebrew, but when they add it, they're honest about it, and so they put it in italics. Many other Bibles don't have these, this word deeds, like the NET, the New King James, the ESV, the English Standard Version, the NIV. They don't add the word deeds. I don't think the word deeds should be added because the word deeds creates the wrong impression about what the good and the evil are. The word deeds, by adding the word deeds, and, and I'm not saying the NASB translators are doing anything you know, nefarious or, or, or you know, they have bad intent or anything like that, but I think when they add the word deeds, it creates the wrong impression. It suggests that Jesus is contradicting, contradicting what he has said everywhere else so far, that salvation is by belief in him. I mean, he said it in John 3.16, right? The Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, believes in him. And now Jesus, so far in John chapter 5, has been talking about hearing his voice, which is to say believing his voice, believing his word. So I think the New King James and the ESV and the NET and the NIV are right by omitting these words, by not adding these words deeds because it creates a false impression the good that jesus is talking about in john 5 29 is believing in him and he says this plainly in john 6 28 where a crowd asked jesus what shall we do so that we may work the works of god and jesus in verse 29 of john chapter 6 says he said to them this is the work or the requirement of god that you believe in him whom he has sent, that you believe in Jesus. The only good that an unbeliever can do is to to work the requirement of God, to do the requirement of God, believe. That's the only thing that an unbeliever can do to satisfy God, is to believe. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please God. The good that Jesus is referring to in John chapter 5, verses verse 29, is the good of believing in Jesus and believing in Him. That's the good that leads to a physical resurrection of life. And the evil that Jesus is referring to in John 5, 29, is the opposite. It's unbelief. Unbelief is evil. Unbelief produces a resurrection of judgment. One more thing about about John Five verses 28 and 29 before we leave it this morning. Jesus is not teaching about the timing of the physical resurrections. Right? We already know about the timing of the spiritual resurrection. It's immediate when you trust in Christ. You're, you receive spiritual life. But now he's shifted over to physical resurrections. Physical resurrection of believers, physical resurrection of unbelievers. He's not talking about the timing of how that would work. He's talking about how it's going to happen, the universality 
of physical resurrection for everybody. The timing, you have to go to other passages. And when you go to other passages, you see the timing first. The ones who were first, well, the first fruits are Jesus. He was the first to be resurrected. Then the next who will be resurrected are church-age believers. You remember 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. His word is going to produce it. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. I think the, the archangel is going to speak as well, but it's the Lord who's going to do it. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and, and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's a source of comfort for us that any day, maybe tonight, we will hear the Lord's voice, the shout. That's what Jesus does. He raises the dead with a word. And this is what we will see when we get to John 11. He says to Lazarus with a shout, Come forth! And the dead man walks out of the grave wrapped as a mummy. As a mummy, he walks out of the grave. And Jesus says, uh, unwrap him. He's going to fall down and hit his head. Die again. Jesus brings the dead to life. First, spiritual life. When we hear his word and we obey it. And then, physical resurrection. Physical life. At the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the first time that believers wholesale will be raised from the dead. When I say that, I mean Jesus was the first fruit. The next event of resurrection will be church-age believers, and it will come from the voice of Jesus, from the shout of Jesus. The next resurrection that happens after that is a resurrection of the bodies of tribulational saints, those who were believers who died in the tribulation. Remember the the, the, the eschaton, the end times, the, the first thing that's on the calendar, just real, real quickly, the first thing that's on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And then there's a seven-year tribulation. God has pushed the pause button on Daniel's prophecy in the book of Daniel where he prophesies the, 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 what's left of the age of Israel. And so you get to Daniel's 70th week. Right now the clock on Daniel's prophecy is paused. God paused the clock during the church age, he's going to push the play button on the clock again, and then that final seven years, called Daniel's 70th week, will happen after the rapture of the church. We're resurrected. All church age believers are resurrected. That's the rapture of the church. After that is the seven years of tribulation. And during the tribulation, there will be people who believe in Christ and who will be martyred during that time period. If Jesus says, if, if, the Lord had not cut that time period. He's talking about the second half. Short, no flesh would survive. There will be near human extinction during the seven-year tribulation. We're not going to be here for that because we will already have been resurrected at the rapture of the church. But during that seven-year tribulation, believers will be martyred because you think that there's persecution against Christians today. In, in, in America, there's kind of mocking. 
right? Go to northern Nigeria and they, they'll, they'll, they'll put you in tires and burn you, right? There's persecution of Christians today. It will be ex- exponentially worse in the second half of the tribulation, persecution of believers. Well, what happens is the resurrection, this, I'm talking about the next tranche, the next phase of, the next stage of resurrection of physical bodies on a large-scale basis will happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation where tribulational saints will be resurrected. You read about that in Revelation 20, verse 4. And since that's the period, the last seven years of the age of Israel, I think what's also happening there in, in Revelation 20, verse 4, is Old Testament saints are also being raised at that time period. Then there is the third group of those who will be resurrected, physically resurrected, right? The, the order is first Jesus, he's the first fruits, then church-age believers at the rapture of the church, then tribulational believers, and I believe Old Testament believers as well. Revelation 20, verse 4, that's at the end of the seven-year tribulation. When that resurrection happens, then there's the millennial reign, and for a thousand years, Christ is ruling on the planet and fulfilling all of the prophecies, all of the promises of the, of the extreme prosperity that will be brought to the planet, peace, justice, righteousness, where he brings the kingdom of heaven to this planet for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, there is the reckoning, a horrific judgment for all who have rejected Christ, all unbelievers. Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation 20, verse 11, as we close this morning. Revelation 20, verse 11. Here we see the resurrection, the physical resurrection of unbelievers. This is the great white throne judgment. It's the purpose for which unbelievers are raised from the dead because everybody's going to live forever. The question is where and with whom. This is the final reckoning. No believers will be at Revelation 20, verse 11. No believers will be at the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment begins in verse 11, but let's start with verse 10. And the devil who, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. I believe that's Jesus. I don't think that's the Father because we already know that the Father has delegated to Jesus, to Jesus all authority. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. There is no escape. There's no hiding from the Jesus that the world mocks today. There's no place to hide. Everything else has been removed. Heaven and earth have been removed and there is but a throne and a man with flesh and bones sits on it. Fully man, fully God. Keep reading verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Important phrase there, according to their deeds. We'll get back to that. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. You see, Hades will be vacated. Unbelievers are in Hades in suffering. Today, now. But it will be vacated. They will be moved 
from Hades to this place. Keep reading verse 13 to the lake of fire. Verse 13 reads like this, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. You see, verse 12 and verse 13 of Revelation 20 show that Jesus will judge unbelievers according to their deeds. We've seen that phrase multiple times here. According to their deeds at the great white throne judgment, they will be recompensed. Everyone will be in torments in hell. Everyone will be in eternal suffering in hell. But there will be degrees, if you can even imagine it, there will be gradations of punishment and suffering that is based on the recompense that Jesus will do. The one who sits on the white throne will do, will impose on those who are in hell. This is levels of suffering in the same way that there are levels of enjoyment for the believer in God's eternal kingdom. There are levels of suffering and punishment in the lake of fire for the unbeliever. Keep reading verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's, ma- if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All believers are in the book of life. All believers are in the book of life. There are no believers who are at this judgment. We're at the, great, we're at the judgment seat of Christ where our lives are evaluated and either we receive re- eternal blessings or the removed from us, eternal rewards or the removed from us. Here you're seeing unbelievers, the physical resurrection of unbelievers for eternal, forever punishment and suffering. A horrible thing. I hope you're telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope you love them enough to tell them that. I hope you're not timid because a reckoning is coming from the one who they reject. It's coming. It's real. Today we've seen Jesus' teaching that his word is so powerful that it makes the dead live. We've seen three resurrections. One is the spiritual resurrection, which is instantaneous in the moment of faith in Christ. We've also seen two physical resurrections. One is the resurrection of believers, the resurrection under joy, under God's eternal kingdom. And the other is the resurrection of unbelievers unto eternal punishment, eternal damnation. This is serious business. Serious. If there's anyone here today without Christ, without hope, without eternal life, we want you to know that God loves you. God loves you so much that he came as a man. He humbled himself, came as a man to pay for your sins, to die as your substitute. You are his enemy. 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 That's what the Word of God describes you as. That's what the Word of God describes me as before I came to Christ. Enemies. Because God can't just say, hey, I, I, I like you. You know, you're pretty nice. You've got a good personality. I like you. God can't blow off our sin. His holiness prevents him from doing anything other than judging it with the judgment that we deserve. But he's not just holy. He's not just a God of wrath and judgment. He's also a God of immeasurable love and mercy and grace. And in his great love, he came to pay for the sins that you committed. He came to pay a debt he didn't owe because you owed a debt you couldn't pay. And all you have to do is trust 
in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. And in that instant, you are raised from the dead immediately, spiritually. That which is dead in you, which is you have no spiritual life, you are spiritually alienated from God before you come to Christ. But in that instant of faith, then you are quickened, you are made alive, spiritually alive, spiritually resurrected. Do it. You have no reason not to. No reason not to. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for you are an awesome God. We praise you that you sent your son to reveal you to us through him. We praise you that you sent your son to die for us, to be our substitute, to be our sin bearer. We praise you for these things. We approach you in awe and wonder. Help us not be bored with your truth. Help us not be bored with the things that you have revealed to us. Help us marvel at them. Help us approach you in wonder and in awe and your Son as well and God the Holy Spirit that we may praise you, that we may be transformed to be your servants. Give us humility. Break us of our pride that we may walk in your ways and honor your name. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of the kings and Lord of the lords, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.